Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about designing your own monsters. Today we're talking to Jonathan Uliel. How's it going, Jonathan? Hi, thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming on. So, designing monsters. This is something that I've always been hesitant to take on as a DM because I remember looking through the rules in the DM's guide and just thinking... This is too much work. I'm going to let other people do it. So I'm glad that you're here to help <laughs> walk us through what goes into designing a monster. Because I think for me, the thing that was always kind of the thing that I was most uh, scared about, I was trying to think of a nicer word than scared, but scared about is um, I already have problems sometimes with like the, the party that I ran my longest campaign for had it was already hard to create encounters because I had a barbarian that took, he was a bear totem spirit or something. So he, when he was raging, he took a quarter damage from right. pretty much everything. <laughs> and then I had a fighter barbarian who also took a little bit less damage. So I had two kind of really tanky characters and then a bunch of really squishy people. Mm -hmm. And so trying to design an encounter so that it was challenging for everybody, but wasn't a, okay, you three are now dead in the first turn, and now it's all up to the Barbarian and the Fighter. Like, trying to figure out encounters so that it was engaging for everybody. And, like, no matter what I did with challenge ratings, like, it became just a year-long or a couple-year-long learning process to try and figure out, okay, how do I find monsters either from the Monster Guide or any of the other books or online from Homebrew that isn't going to destroy this party? Yeah. And so I'm... I guess my first question is like when you're when you're designing a monster and thinking about the challenge rating and stuff like that what are some of the important things to consider like cuz I I'm guessing that when you're wanting to create a monster from scratch it's because you want to create something for a campaign that you're running usually Sure yeah I think <clears throat> there are a few different reasons why I I'd, I'd create a new monster or like you know uh kind of rejig an existing monster to fit a, a party um, but before we get into that, I want to address something that you said at the beginning that, you know, uh, designing a new monster looks really challenging and it is really challenging. I don't want to disillusion anybody. There are a couple basic rules that make it way easier and streamline the process, but I learned how to do this just through trial and error. I've been DMing for maybe five, seven years, uh, and you will, you know, have duds the first time you design, maybe not the first or the second, but the third time things will fall flat and you'll have balance issues. And that's, you know, something that you kind of have to deal with on the fly as a DM. And that can be really intimidating and challenging, but I don't want it to dissuade anybody because there is, so you can get some really interesting and important kind of experiences out of introducing new monsters into a setting. Um, one of the big reasons I do it is, you know, like you were saying, to address party balance. Um, the way D&D 5e is designed, or the way I understand it to be designed, is there are supposed to be more kind of quick encounters during a day, right? Yeah. But when you're running a game, fights can take, you know, an hour, two hours. And if you only have like a three or four hour session, it's really hard to get that going. 
Um, and so sometimes you just want to have one encounter that kind of addresses the, the abilities of all the characters in your party. Yeah, my understanding is that it, uh, a day is meant to be, I think it's like six to eight medium encounters, something like that, yeah. where where each encounter, like the idea is that the first couple of encounters are meant to be kind of easy, kind of breezy. And then the last encounter is meant like the last encounter of the day when, you know, all of the spell slots are gone and all of the abilities have been used up and all of this, like your characters are down to, you know, sticks and stones, basically Mm -hmm. trying to fight off whatever this, the, the creatures they're fighting are. But yeah, like most, most games you have, you don't have time for, two encounters let alone six to eight yeah and and trying to plan out a campaign where you have a single day that lasts four or five sessions Mm. seems ridiculous (laughs) you'd never get anything done right yeah Uh, other things other reasons why i would introduce a monster into a setting or into a campaign is um novelty if you're an experienced dm or if you have experienced players they can kind of start memorizing monster weaknesses, monster abilities. And, you know, it's it's hard not to metagame even when you're trying not to. So if you can throw something at your players that they really don't expect, it can make an otherwise, you know, mundane experience seem really unique. You can design like a, a CR1 or 2 monster um, that really challenges them and forces them to think, you know, take the combat outside of like, oh, well, I don't have any special abilities because I'm level one, so I just hit it with my sword, or I just cast Eldritch Blast again, right? You you kind of make them think tactically. That can be a really uh, kind of a lasting experience, something that they'll remember. And I know that like a lot of people advocate for just reskinning monsters, but it's if you're playing with experienced players, it's really easy <clears throat> for them to kind of figure out the gist of how those work. Sure. I so that's something else that I wanted to get into. Um, reskinning monsters and using the templates that are already available in the source material is your best friend as a DM. Um, if you do it well, reskinning can be kind of invisible, right? Um, and I have a couple examples of monsters uh, that I've reskinned here, so maybe we can get get into that later, and I'll kind of show you what I mean. But yeah, there is kind of a worry um, that your players are going to be able to anticipate what you know how to win yeah. uh, every encounter, um, and this can be a way to mitigate that. And I think it's um, a really making your own monsters or reskinning monsters. I think is also a really effective way to surprise the party, also so that you know. If they make a knowledge roll, it's mm-hmm. actually rewarding if they sure. figure out what the monster is, as opposed to, like, if you roll in with a troll and you make them roll and, like, they don't know it's a troll, but they still know it's a troll, it can be kind of... Yeah. Well, you have players who are like, oh, I want to roll knowledge arcana to figure out if the troll has a weakness to fire. Like, that's not... <laughs> yeah. You want to avoid situations like that. Yeah. yeah. And those fights can be fun, but it's it's nice to be able to throw them a curveball where they legitimately don't know how to what to do and they don't, like just happen to use their firebolt instead of their eldritch blast or something like that i think especially for dungeons and dragons fifth edition um one of the things that's really attractive to people is the uh the way the game mechanics are kind of focused on storytelling and lateral thinking and for people who really like roleplay combat can be one of the most boring parts of the game but by you know kind of reskinning monsters and like again like you say throwing them curveballs you can add to that experience yeah, I think it is one of the things with D&D is that because of its roots and where it came from, it is a very combat-focused game. Yeah. And uh, like I've played in some other systems where combat is really just one of like eight to ten different ways to express a character. Sure. Uh, I think we just talked to somebody recently where 
we were talking about fate and like in fate you can have a party of four people and only one of them even knows how to fight at all Mm -hmm. and the rest of them you know in a fight they're not doing anything except maybe like oh i'm gonna tip over this barrel of oil (laughs) to try and you know make things easier on the fighter or harder for everybody or whatever it is whereas Mm -hmm. in D &D, kind of no matter what kind of character you want to play as you kind of have to be somebody who fights because if you're the unless you've kind of the player has talked with the dm beforehand of being like my character is a pacifist they're Mm -hmm. not going to take part in any fights they might help the players like they might be playing like a cleric or something so like yeah i'll cast aid or something like that i'll heal up them when heal them up when they're they're having problems but i'm not going to do any damage there's no way to account for that mm-hmm. in yeah. in D so yeah i think the idea of being able to custom like homebrew some monsters so that you have something that fits exactly to what your party is so i think let's start with um if somebody was starting a new campaign with some low-level characters um what kind of monsters would you think would be a good idea to create and how would you go? And then we can get into like how you would actually start creating those characters. Sure. Monsters. <clears throat> so that kind of touches on the, the, the third, the last reason why I design new monsters. And that is to flesh out a setting and make a setting seem more realistic. So, you know, a random encounter tables can be fun, but they can also take away from the immersion. So it's like, say your party is in a desert and they're walking along and you roll on the random encounter table and you get a giant octopus. You can say like, oh, you stumble upon an oasis and oh no, tentacles come out of the water. But it seems kind of forced, right? Um, so it's, Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because mm-hmm. um, the only time that I have done uh, random encounter tables... I spent a bunch of time prepping them. Like I, it was, it was actually for the beginner box campaign. Sure. And I, they have a map where they have uh, of the area that the players can be trapezing about. And there's an encounter table that comes with the beginner box, but I pretty much immediately threw it away. And then just, I drew a couple of circles around the various areas so that like, if they're in the forest, they might run into goblins or some of the more foresty creatures that are in the beginner's beginner's box. Um, but they're not going to run into bandits. But right. if they're on the road, that's when they might run into bandits. So mm-hmm. that it's still random encounter tables, um, but it's kind of more geared to where they are. Mm-hmm. But I like the <clears> idea <throat> of being able to custom. I mean, I've got too many monster books almost. <laughs> like I've got the monster manual. I've got Volo's Guide, the Kobold, the Kobold Press Tome of Beasts, wow, um, yeah. and the second one, Creature the Codex. Creature Codex. Deep cuts. So, yeah. So I've got a lot of a lot of options, but. I still find myself going online to try and find like if they're going to be in a desert, like, yeah, give me some more desert creatures. Mm-hmm. And but being able to homebrew them because I know that, OK, they're going to be in mountains or they're going to be in the desert or they're going to be sailing across the sea. Being able to homebrew something so that I that I know it'll exactly fit rather than spending two or three hours scouring Reddit to try and find yeah. the perfect <laughs> creature. Um I can see how that'd be a lot better for me. (laughs) So this is, again, something I want to emphasize. Reskinning is your best friend as a DM who wants to kind of flesh out a setting and design a new monster for your players to encounter. So um, my background, uh, just professionally, I'm a biologist, uh, and I take a lot of my inspiration from you know, just biology, nature documentaries, that sort of thing. And I I would actually encourage DMs to do that more often um, because nature is gruesome. It's really mean. 
uh, everything out there is just kind of fighting to survive. And there are a lot of, you know, animals and other creatures that have come up with some really weird, nasty tricks in order to do that. Um, so uh, let's say, yeah, you're in a desert um, and you want to have your, you know, level one party encounter something that'll be kind of scary, a challenge, but also interesting and something they'll remember. Um, so off the top of my head, I don't know any CR1 monsters that are desert appropriate. I'm sure there are lots. Uh, but let's say um, me watching a nature documentary, I see an antlion. Um, so antlions, you might know, they're little bugs and they live in sandy environments. And what they do is they burrow into the ground and they create these kind of cone-shaped pits, kind of like a sarlacc pit. And they sit at the bottom and they have these huge trap uh, kind of spring-loaded jaws and when they sense like an ant or something that's walking along the pit they'll start digging sand out from the bottom and so the insect or whatever it is is slowly drawn into the center of the pit and then the jaw springs shut i i remember reading something about antlions that they scientists discovered that they actually use like there's a property of sand like fine grains of any material there's a an angle at which it's like the perfect angle. And if you add any more, it'll immediately just like slide off. Yeah. And antlions <clears throat> use that property of sand so that like if they remove a little bit from or they'll like flick some sand and it'll just cause like wherever that the, the ant or bug, or whatever it is that they've that's like entered into this pit is just going to keep getting closer and closer to the antlion. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the beauty of evolution over you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, this little insect has kind of figured out, in a sense, how to use that property of fluid dynamics, which is pretty cool. But it's also something that you can use in your campaign. So there's no real analog, again, off the top of my head, for the antlion, but uh, you could make one. Um, I guess the way I would start doing this is by looking through the monster manual and seeing if there are any monsters that are CR appropriate that have these abilities. Um, so what do we want it to do? We want it to be an ambush predator. We want it to essentially be a, a trap, like an environmental obstacle that the players run into. And then maybe they'll have to do a skill challenge to see if they fall in the pit. And if they get to the bottom, instead of spikes or snakes, there's this horrible giant insect waiting for them. <clears throat> um, yeah, so... I'm kind of thinking that, like, just in terms of... Like, it would probably have... Uh... I'm thinking like because of the the, the trap like jaws of the antlion, mm -hmm. I'm thinking it would probably have something like a bite where if it hits, it has a chance to grapple. Sure, like maybe the uh, hmm, the pounce ability or the constrict ability actually would be perfect. <clears throat> I'm almost thinking kind of like the uh, what's the uh, thing the that pulse has something like that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, where they if they hit with their claw, you're grappled essentially. Yes, and uh, uh, the giant constrictor snake has an ability called constrict, which is exactly the same thing. Yeah. And the, I can't remember what it's called, the thing that pretends to be a stalagmite or stalactite. Oh, the uh, uh, roper? Ropers. Yeah. yeah. Their yeah. tentacles, if they hit, you count as grappled. Sure. Yeah. And so that kind of makes up for the fact that this uh, antline is stationary in the center of the trap. Um, and then, so antlions, once they catch their prey, they'll actually dig down into the sand and drag whatever it is with them. So a burrow speed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so now, you know, we're starting to kind of, we have a special ability. We have kind of the base things that we need. What I would do now is f go through the monster manual. There's a, a section at the very end for just kind of mundane creatures. I would find a CR creature that has kind of similar stats. So maybe it has really good strength, but very low dexterity because it's stationary. 
Um, it doesn't need intelligence or charisma, or but maybe it has really good wisdom because it can sense creatures that are walking into its trap. Ooh. Or instead of giving it wisdom, you can give it tremor sense. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Instead of could... regular sight or with regular sight. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm, I might be skipping ahead a little bit here, but I'm kind of curious when it comes to, like, you said that, like, an antlion, when it grabs its prey, it's going to burrow underneath so that it can kind mm-hmm. of just, I don't know if it's trying to asphyxiate them or what, or at least it's, you know, it doesn't have to worry about something else coming along and stealing its sure. prey. Um, what would you do to make this a little bit more fair, especially if it's a lower level party? Because if it just immediately burrows underground, then, okay, the depending on how mean you want to be, maybe the player has to start thinking about how long can they hold their breath, but also... How does the rest of the party help out once it's taken them underground? Right. So I think having this as kind of a two-part encounter helps with that. So a player kind of steps on this area of sand that just looks like the slope of a dune, and all of a sudden it starts to crumble from underneath them. So maybe they have a chance to get out. Other players have a chance to help them. Maybe it takes them a whole round to fall to the bottom. If any players are unlucky enough to fall to the bottom, they can, again, resist uh, the grapple attempt. Um yeah. Yeah, you could give it a low athletics or say it has to roll acrobatics as for the opposed grapple sure. once it's grabbed, so they have they have a higher chance of escaping once grappled mm-hmm. to and make up for the fact that it's an auto grapple on a hit. There's a monster uh in the monster manual called a marrow, which is it's a CR three monster. It's super nasty. This thing is basically like a dire mermaid. And it, the way it's set up, it has a harpoon that's attached to a rope. Um and you don't have to run it this way, but I think this is kind of the way it was designed, where uh, the marrow will attack players from within a body of water, harpoon them, and then drag them into the water. Um, so this isn't kind of like a completely unforeseen circumstance within the kind of the scope of D&D. Um, yeah. I ran one of those the other day. <laughs> they're really, really nasty. They are. <laughs> yeah. I, it reminds me, I ran a roper once for, for the campaign, and... It's something that I'm trying to get better at is properly reading the <laughs> the entire monster uh, like description because I realized partway through the fight that um, just how many tentacles it has and <laughs> that they auto grapple. Yeah, and so it's not like I think it's got something like six or eight. It's a lot. It's a lot of tentacles, and each one on a hit grapples. So like, if you target a single player with all of these attacks it's like cool you're being grappled by five tentacles now yeah. and it's going to start walking like very slowly because it's got a movement speed of like 10 feet or something <laughs> but it's movement speed and it's just going to start like it was i had this positioned on the edge of an underground cliff and it's just like <laughs> yeah it's going to start walking off the cliff now and just like start going over the side and slowly down and like mm-hmm. the players were freaking out because it's like it keeps grappling me. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome though. Yeah. But like that's that's the the thing you can also make a call as a or call about as a DM, right? You could be like, okay, well it says it has six tentacles. But for my purposes it only has three. Mm-hmm. Because that that's all Otherwise, I need. I I wanna yeah. have at least one player who's not gonna be grappled at any time. Or like I was running the marrow, I was like I was running for level one PCs. And oh. it was the it was the only monster they were really fighting. Yeah. Um, and like they made short work of it, but I was like, that just reduces damage a little bit. Yeah, sure. Because like a creature like that, that uh, kind of by its design targets one specific player can be super, super deadly for that one character, which is no fun, right? It's not a TPK, but it can still bring the mood down. So I think for a creature like that, what I would do is 
try and get the players to treat it as an environmental hazard. And then maybe once they recognize that like, oh, dunes that have this shape are dangerous, I would try and put more of those in the environment later on in the game and then maybe see if they could use them. Like, oh, maybe now there's an ant lion and they're being ambushed by, I don't know, sand goblins. And they could try and push the sand goblins into the pit. It could be like a fun kind of problem solving thing. I'm thinking of uh, there are a couple of creatures that have a like if they bite and the character fails i think it's a dexterity saving throw they get swallowed yeah and (laughs) if and and for all of the creatures that have that uh that that style of ability where it's like well if you fail the saving throw you're now in its in its gullet Uh if you do enough damage in a single round it'll spit them back out yeah yeah Uh, but i was just thinking like i don't think that would work for the antline because they're underground like how Mm -hmm. do you attack something through the sand exactly and and again like the marrow that's in the water it can throw its harpoon and then immediately duck back down so that's part of the challenge of the encounter maybe this thing doesn't have a high ac or a ton of hit points it's just hard to hit you know for different reasons it's always got three quarters cover (laughs) yeah exactly so maybe what the players could do just as an example is i don't know uh like take a, a thing of alchemist's fire and very gingerly put it on the edge of the pit and then roll it down (laughs) right but that again that's lateral thinking so that kind of example is making a monster from scratch using the natural world as inspiration but again we're not making any new abilities we're just taking abilities from existing monsters maybe even monsters of the same cr i would actually encourage that and take it uh you know as your own reskin them in a sense um this is kind of the big argument for reskinning is that all the abilities and all of the monsters in the monster manual and in Bolas Guide and all the other books have been play tested. You're way less likely to throw something that's either totally inappropriate or super deadly at your players if you use the abilities that already exist. I guess this is this was always the thing when I looked at the cal- like the building of a of a monster when I looked at the DM's guide, it wasn't so much the picking like what attacks it has how many attacks it has how many hit points and all that it was calculating the cr yeah so that you were making sure that and for some of them like i remember taking a look and it felt like for simpler creatures like if you're trying to make you know your own version of a hobgoblin Mm -hmm. from scratch it was easier because you were dealing with like okay it's got a a short sword and and a short bow and it's got so many hit points and so the calculation was fairly straightforward yeah a lot of the decisions are already made for you yeah but when you're talking about something that's got a cut like a special ability like Mm -hmm. it can drag somebody underground or something or it maybe has uh like layer actions like Mm -hmm. or it can do magic or it has a breath weapon like suddenly the calculation becomes way more intense it totally gets thrown off so this is something that i wanted to bring up um if you look at say the giant centipede stat block it has four hit points it's a cr uh one over four one quarter one quarter monster so four hit points makes sense but if you go to the uh table in the monster manual or sorry in the dungeon master's guide um i believe that's yeah around page 273 um it actually has a table for cr and then the equivalent like uh, proficiency armor class hit points the suggested amounts for all of those crs um, the suggested number of hit points for the, the giant centipede for a one quarter CR creature is 40, which is 10 times the amount that the centipede actually has. Um, and that's uh, the centipede has the same suggested AC. It has the same suggested proficiency bonus and everything. 
Uh, and I think what that is to do is to make up for the fact that it has a really, really nasty bite attack. Because even though it can only bite once per round, its poison damage is enough to kill a first level character. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of balance issues like that that aren't necessarily obvious just by looking at the table, but that are already taken into account. Like maybe the first iteration of the Giant Centipede had 40 hit points and they play tested it and they were like, this is way, way too tough, even for a level one party. And so you don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> Well, that's the interesting thing about the table, because I've made a couple of custom monsters a while back, and they were severely broken. Yeah, totally. Because I'm like, you know, they were level CR, like CR 10 or whatever, because that was like on the level 11 party. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I made some kobolds that had like way too much hit points hit way too hard and yeah. they didn't really mess up the party because the party was also severely broken mm -hmm. but um like it, <laughs> isn't that every party <laughs> yeah it was more severely broken it was before i understand understood the balance surrounding magic items in fifth edition right. yeah um but like i made this thing and you know it was a bunch of regular kobolds and then these two kind of elite kobolds so they cut through the regular ones but like the elite ones really threw them off because like you know they had like 300 hit points by suggestion <laughs> because they were just brawler like or brawler yep. slash like rogue type characters as opposed to like having a bunch of different abilities mm -hmm. and the book at least at last glance for me which was admittedly a little while ago now is a uh, kind of forgets to mention how to like doesn't really have good guidelines for balancing those things all in concert with each other no that's something that isn't actually mentioned in that section of the book which really threw me off but i think that table is meant to be for creatures that have no other special abilities yeah um yeah so i'd be very very careful when using that um one of the things i just want to bring up real quick before we move on is that uh you're talking about like having creatures in a desert and then figuring out like okay now we've got an antlion where can we place it so it's more in the environment and they have sure. to start thinking about it is one of the creatures from the tome of beasts is a it's not a desert dragon it's a like desert worm or something but it's back Awesome. Uh, has these big spines and what it does is it burrows into a dune so that it looks like a dead creature Whoa. so that the party will want to approach it and try to they'll think that like oh maybe there's some some stuff that we can um salvage from this corpse and then when they get to uh, inside of these spines they snap closed like a like a like uh, bear trap cage or the with the plant oh the venus flytrap yeah. yeah that's ingenious i love yeah. that i it's been a while since i read that stat block but i love that monster but what i thought it did because it's been a while is that it i thought it flipped with them <laughs> underneath it and then they had to like get out as well as fight it but the, the, the cage makes more sense yeah my understanding is that the creature like it's meant to be like a wild creature. It's not like a smart dragon. It's just a like a worm. Mm -hmm. So it basically waits for something and then traps it, waits for it to die, and then eats it. <laughs> that would be such a good like minion monster, like brutish minion monster for a smarter person sure, who's like yeah. setting traps for the players. Totally. Because it catches them and then brings them to them. But I just really quick with like it made me think that sometimes creating creatures isn't just about thinking like oh yeah in the desert maybe antlions or mm -hmm. you know desert foxes that come out at night or whatever but tying it kind of into a theme and thinking of like okay maybe antlions and these trap worms or whatever they're called i can't remember and like like to me like thinking of these two creatures i would start going use that as the theme like creatures in this desert have evolved to trap things yeah now you're fleshing out the setting right yeah i, I think that's great because 
you know, for my money, your players are going to remember that setting and the individual encounters in that setting way more than if you just, you know, threw sand goblins, sand goblins at them. <laughs> yeah. Unless unless it's a really silly tribe of sand goblins. Oh, yeah. And they make like emotional connection to individual sand goblins and stuff. Players are unpredictable. Let's 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 say that. That's always true. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think goblins are one of the weirder creatures in D&D because there's they're, I think they're one of the more malleable because you can treat them as like yeah horrible little thieving devils, or you can treat them like the coconut people from Moana, like just yeah. silly, lighthearted. Like they're not really trying to kill you; they just want your stuff. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I I prefer that that interpretation of them as just like you know, especially desperados. especially as we move further and further into them being like a standardized player race. Sure. I think that's also a, a good way to consider them because like if. If you do the thing where you're like, all oh, the goblins are horrible and evil and all the time, which is, I guess, okay. Like it's kind of boring when you well, and when you add in the option of it being a player race, it's like, oh, but your one character is the one exception, a la Drist from the Drow kind of thing, yeah, which yeah. I think is uh, not interesting. Yeah, exactly. I think like tieflings often fall into that, or back in like three point five, they used to fall into that all the time because tieflings were not supposed to be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to creating monsters, sure. though. One of the things uh, that I wanted to ask about is uh, taking more examples from real-world creatures. Because um, the first thing that kind of popped into my head when, because we we're talking about the ocean a little bit, and then we went to desert and ant mines. But I was curious, um, what would you do with the pistol shrimp? Whoa, yeah. For for people <clears throat> who don't know, this is basically it's a tiny little shrimp, but it's got this crazy ability that its its claw is evolved in such a way that when it it basically locks open like the um hammer of a gun and when it snaps closed it actually it snaps closed so fast that it creates i think they're called it's called like a super cavitating bubble it basically yeah, it's a little bubble of vacuum in there and yeah it basically creates a bubble of vacuum in the water that creates a shock wave that knocks its prey out mm-hmm yeah, it's a really incredible animal. I think one thing to be careful about is just because an animal is really cool in real life doesn't necessarily mean it's suited for D&D. Um, but Pistol Shrimp, I think we can make that work. Uh, so where I would start again is by looking in the monster manual and seeing if there's a creature that we can kind of appropriate. Um, and the one that immediately springs to my mind is a giant crab. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, so... Giant crabs have the claw grab ability. Um, they have pretty good AC. I don't know about their hit points, um, but uh, you could probably take that and use it as a template. The hmm, it's tough. I think the shock ability. Is, would, is there are there any creatures that have any kind of like sound based wisdom save kind of things where like if you don't save, then you're confused or you get knocked unconscious? So I would actually treat this like a spell like ability almost, or so. Like, again, what I was saying about uh, having all of these abilities be play-tested, that doesn't seem like an ability that you would see in a lower CR creature. Yeah, It like seems this... more like a spell. Or, you know what it seems like? It looks like the monk's stunning strike. Oh, yeah. And you could probably model it off of the monk's stunning strike. Um, but even then, the monk's stunning strike only targets one creature at a time, whereas this would be in 
an area, so you might run into balance issues there. So this is kind of kind of a tough one. I'm wondering if maybe instead of it being because I was thinking of it like as a sound where it travels, you know, in waves outward. Oh. Maybe it's more of a a, a focused cone. Yeah, uh, shatter the first level spell. I think would be perfect for this. So basically, you would say that when this is like a special ability that because it has to cock its clock and only use once every 1d4 or 1d6 rounds, but it can effectively cast or it has It has a recharge like a dragon's fire breath. Exactly. Like on a 5 yeah. or a 6, it comes back. Yeah, and then you could have maybe, uh, so it does like sonic damage, and then you get the players to roll like, a, I don't know, a DC 11 strength check or fall prone. Something like that. Yeah, and um, what you could even do for balance reasons, mm-hmm. you could make it a bit deadlier, but also specify that since it's based on a pistol shrimp, it's wa- it works in water. Only in water. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, if the players roll a high enough nature check, they're like, okay, well, it's really dangerous in the water, but if we could try and, like, force it out through some clever means yeah. between recharges, we might be able to, like, knock off a lot of the difficulty in the fight. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, that could be really fun. Um, or yeah, you can even great. do like um, it stuns you, but only for one round mm-hmm. or something like that instead of a save ends. Sure. Yeah, that could be really nasty. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I like the idea of having it as a cone because it's more, you know, you're less likely to take out an entire party with that. Yeah. But I was also thinking like maybe like along with the shatter, like treat it kind of a lot more like shatter where you just describe it as like it snaps and the bubble, like it has some control over where, where that bubble bursts. Sure. Yeah. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to touch on uh, if we're taking inspiration from nature is to think about the tactics that a monster uses. So it's very, hmm, I think this depends on your style of DMing, but for me, I like to think every round about the resources that my monster is using and the reasons why it would use those resources, right? So for our pistol shrimp, um, it's an ambush predator, right? Basically the idea is it sneaks up on a fish uh, and then it snaps its claw shut, the fish is knocked out, and then it grabs it and chomps on it. And so this is probably how I would have this monster approach a party of players. Maybe it would try and get just your scout. Um, or it would try and sneak up on, say, your wizard that is at the behind, back of the party and make it kind of act a little smarter. I, th- I think that's actually one of the things that... I don't think DMs forget about it, but... when you're thinking about monsters especially non-sentient monsters like the ones that are more they're they're animals basically Mm -hmm. with magical properties or whatever is that yeah like an ambush predator isn't going to stick around until it's dead yeah like if it fails to knock somebody out and drag it away it's gonna leave um and i think the my the best example for this is how people tend to run dragons. Sure. Um, because when I think of a dragon, and I think this was something that I, I read it in a post or maybe saw it in a video, one of uh, not Matt Mercer, Matt Colville, Matt Colville or I think might have talked about this, where basically like a dragon is a super smart magical beast. And the only reason it's going to be fighting you on the ground is that it, it, it can't fly anymore. Yeah. Like it, it, it's the kind of thing. Like I, I did this to my players once with the black dragon, and they hated me for it. Is that it didn't touch down until they had used the crossbow, like the giant crossbows on the city walls, to t- to bring it down to ground. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, like you know, I would tell them like, oh, it looks like it's banking around for another pass, and it would just, it basically just fly over and try to hit as many of them as it could with its acid breath. Right. Because the acid breath 
because some of the dragons have a line based mm-hmm. breath weapon other ones have the cone but with the with the line it's kind of fun to just be like yeah across the entire <laughs> battle mat it's just going to draw a line uh-huh. and um so yeah like thinking about how monsters and even sometimes even intelligent monsters like like goblins for example mm-hmm. i kind of think of them as ambush predators like they're yeah. they're not super smart but they are kind of tricksy they're not very strong but they've got strength in numbers so if you get ambushed by a group of goblins and then you take a couple of them out or you're still alive after a couple of rounds or still conscious at least they're probably going to bug out they're, yeah. they're you're too tough for us we're going to leave now yeah not every encounter has to end with the players killing the monster or vice versa right that's the thing i'm trying to consider more as a dm when i run monsters be like okay at what point do they flee Mm-hmm. At what point do they are they like? Yeah, this isn't worth it. We're going. Yeah, and part of that you know just comes with DM experience. But again, if you're designing monsters from scratch, you have total control um, over the way they act, right? And it's I think almost easier to kind of think about that while you're designing the monster and have kind of purposeful design. You don't throw an ability in just because it's cool. You throw it in for a reason, right? And when you're taking um, inspiration from biology, real world creatures like. That the reasons are already there for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think even with a little bit further, like think about fight, or, uh, fight or flight. Sure. Where like if you back a monster into a corner, like like if you're hunting a creature down because you need some magical ingredients to whatever, mm-hmm. then if you like, you're gonna have to find it and track it down and back it into a corner so that it's got no chance but to either fight you or like it'll probably still try to get away and. Yeah. I think those kind of things is almost kind of an antidote to the, oh no, our fight has been going on for two hours and it's been 20 rounds and we still haven't killed all of these things. Mm -hmm. Like there's a point at which it's okay to say like, yeah, this monster fled because it's an ambush predator or you've killed too many of his friends or whatever. Yeah. I think another really neat thing you can do with ambush predators is have the, like the style of fight and like the antline I think touches on this where it's like maybe a not high hit point creature which separates one party member from the rest of the party and the fight isn't just a fight it's also a puzzle it's trying to figure out how to do it and like yeah, a I, rescue yeah and I've, I've done a similar thing with this unfortunately it was unbalanced in the party's favor but like I made a um, trapdoor spider oh great that yeah. like pulled one of them underground and so the rest of the party had to focus on like trying to figure out how to get in there in the first place to get in and then the other person was you know fighting one-on-one and Mm -hmm. unfortunately for my monster i based it off of just like kind of the base giant spider but they were like level six or seven so they were like he the monster just could not hit the person in question and like they just kind of yeah it ended up being them standing there waiting for their friends to get them out (laughs) but like you can and I think this is a good way also to avoid that too long fight thing. Be like, yeah, no, this is going to be a short fight where either the monster is going to flee or he's going to isolate one of the players. And it might just it might end up being a fight just between that one player and the monster while the party scrambles to try and help. Mm-hmm. But that's that's also interesting and dramatic. And it's yeah, it makes it, moments that are memorable. Yeah, it's I, better. Sorry. Yeah. I, sorry. It's better than just like fighting a bear in the yeah, woods. Yeah, exactly. It, it brings novelty right um so i think we're kind of getting into encounter design rather than than designing monsters um but i do want to talk about spiders for a second because there's just there's two spiders in the monster manual there's the giant wolf spider which is like cr one quarter 
um, which is just like a little vermin. You could step on it and kill it. And then there's the giant spider, which has a bite ability and the ability to shoot webs, which is very video gamey and not really like any spiders in the real world. But there are so many amazing spiders that already exist that you can draw inspiration from. Um, and I, that is one of the monsters that I kind of pre-designed for this uh, this episode that I want to talk about. Well, let's get into it then. I work in an entomology lab, uh, and one of my fellow graduate students works with spiders, and he has kind of a, a little spider collection. Um, and so I, I get to interact with them um, every once in a while, which is super cool. And that kind of has helped inspire me. Uh, one of the spider hunting tactics that I really, really like is jumping spiders. Yeah, so <laughs> jump, jumping spiders. It, I, it's one of those things where it's like, Spiders have hunting tactics. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah, and there's hundreds of different species of them, and they're all pretty unique. Jumping spiders are, again, ambush predators, like we've been talking about. They don't spin webs. Uh, they're very cat-like in the way they hunt, in which uh, they'll walk around kind of a territory, and they have these huge front-facing eyes so they can see insects um, kind of milling around from relatively far away. And so what a jumping spider will does is once it spots a prey item, it'll kind of follow it for a little bit, and then anchor itself with a tiny bit of silk where it's standing. And then uh, it doesn't actually have any muscles in its legs. It uses um, like a spring-loading mechanism, kind of like the pistol shrimp. And it'll point itself at the prey and then launch itself uh, with its legs splayed out. And if it hits, great. If it doesn't hit, if it misses, it just reels itself back to the original starting point. Maybe it'll try again. Maybe it'll give up. And so I uh, was kind of looking at that. I think that could be a really cool... Uh, monster and we already have a giant spider i think it's cr1 um perfect so let's just take the giant spider and reskin it use it as a template um so what can we use in the giant spider it has a bite attack with poison great let's keep that it has spider climb awesome it has uh the stealth ability perfect it has the web ability jumping spiders don't use webs so we can get rid of that in order to balance that, maybe we should add something back, something that reflects the jumping spider's hunting tactics. So I've already mentioned that the jumping spider's hunting tactics are very cat-like. So I took a look at the lion stat block, which is just a couple pages down. And the lion has two abilities, pounce and running leap. So running leap is great. If you move a certain amount in a turn, the lion moves like I think 10 feet in a turn, it gets a free 25 foot jump, which is nuts. Um, and then there's the pounce ability, which is if the lion moves a certain amount in a turn and then attacks in the same turn, whatever is attacked has to make it a check or fall prone, um, which is really nasty. Yeah. And so I think imagine basically uh, an ambush predator that attacks by jumping, right? For a lion, this is kind of... A lions are pretty obvious even when they're hiding, right? There's these giant cats and they're restricted to a two-dimensional plane. Throw this on a giant spider, which has spider climb and decent stealth, so it can be totally hidden and then come at your players from any angle. It doesn't matter if this thing doesn't have very many hit points. It's going to have the element of surprise every time. You can have a combat start by it jumping down from the ceiling uh, by using the running leap ability, having it pounce on your players. If it lands a bite attack, the players are knocked prone. And then if it doesn't kill the player, it still has poisoned them, and it can use Running Leap to jump away the next turn and then re-hide. <laughs> could be a pretty nasty fight. Yeah, and that's that's something that's really cool, but I also feel like 
for reskinning and kind of building, you might want to look at that and go, mm, maybe you double the CR on this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, like a quick thing about CR is like it's meant to reflect the way the monster should be acting and the tactics it should be using. Mm-hmm. So it's still going to be a level one monster if it just stands around for a straight up fight, right? Yeah. But if it's doing that, then yeah, its CR goes up because it's fighting smart and it's fighting dirty because it's fighting like a wild animal. So a big part of using design monsters well is just, you know, being able to make calls on the fly as a DM. Let's say I'm fighting smart with this jumping spider and I think my party can handle it, but it'll do quite a bit more damage than I expected. Maybe I would just give them, you know, a XP equivalent to a CR2 monster and then they can feel better about it. But if I really think I'm hammering them too hard, I would just dumb it down. Yeah. I would make it stand there and just keep biting the same player round yeah. after round. Um, yeah, so the, you can kind of mitigate this on the fly, but I, I really like throwing challenges at my players, not just monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about monsters like this that makes them really cool and really versatile is mm-hmm. like, you can be like, okay, I mean, it's only a CR1 or 2 monster. I'll run it. I'll run a couple of them against my CR5 party. Sure. And so it won't be necessarily doing so much damage that it's going to kill them, but it will still be an interesting and challenging encounter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, if they're going to land one hit on it, then they kill it. But the challenge is landing that hit. Yeah. Right. So I just I just had an image of like somebody in full plate standing there and then a spider comes hurtling out of the forest on underbrush and just bounces off yeah i mean it's a spider that's the size of like a pony right but yeah yeah like just it just the the character just no selling the the attack just being like i'm in full armor go away yeah well the, the cool thing especially about ambush predators to remember is that like going into a fight well that fighter you know might have disadvantage on his save because he's functionally surprised or he's he's been ambushed sure so you can make the initial start of it more compelling and more difficult and more shocking for your players Mm -hmm. but then you know after that oh well you know it doesn't have quite the leg up that it has now that they know that's coming yeah exactly um so uh i just want to mention a couple other spiders that i really like you have to go into designing these but so there are you might have heard of these like well you mentioned the trapdoor spider which has basically makes a little burrow for itself and then it has a web of silk that it weaves above the burrow. And then it'll have a little lid with a trap door that it makes out of silk and, and leaves and mud and stuff. And it uses its front legs, which have a lot of nerve endings, to feel the silk on the roof of the burrow. And if an insect walks above the roof, it'll pop it open, grab it, and drag it underground. Pretty nasty. Yeah. And then there are uh, the ogre-faced spiders. You should look these up. They're really cool. Um, one of the hunting tactics for these spiders is they... Uh, the they have these really long front set of legs and they'll, you guys remember like cat's cradle games where you take like yeah. a rubber band yeah, or yeah. yeah, they'll make a mesh of web in their front couple legs, kind of like a cat's cradle and they'll hang upside down over like a patch of ground and wait for something to walk underneath them and then just snag it, lower themselves and kind of uh, like a giant living angry claw game. Yeah. They're pretty cool to look at too. And then uh, there are the bola spiders. These are, there's a, a few nature documentaries kind of about these. So you can look up videos, what they do. It's really cool. They'll have um, kind of a single strand of web. They don't make like big, nice orb webs. They'll sit on a leaf or a branch and they'll have a single long strand of web that they dangle from one of their legs. And on the end of that web is kind of a glob of glue, sticky glue. 
And in that glue, they've impregnated it with a, a chemical which mimics the pheromone of a certain species of moth. And then they'll kind of sit there and wag the, the web and the glob of glue attracts moths. And if the moth flies into it, thinking that like, oh, this is a time for sexy times, they get tangled up. And then the spider quickly reels that in and, and bites the... So you could have a spider that say like, I don't know, if it's a smart spider, has like a piece of treasure or a piece of food or something that it's dangling and just waiting for something to grab. And like, I really like this idea and thinking about stuff like this, because especially once you build a couple of things, you can start reusing things from them. Yeah, every single one of these, you can use the CR1 template for a giant spider and just swap out the web ability. Well, and I'm also thinking like the kind of that glob of treasure Mm -hmm. would also work if you're like, oh, an underwater setting, I'm going to build a like mutant anglerfish or something like that. Like you can, once you start building those things and it made some custom things and played them and you see that they work, you can reuse them in different situations totally. you could different even monsters. use this exact same stat block your players aren't going to notice <laughs> you know i just thought of something that would be so mean is that like you do a session and then there's a mimic and you do another session then there's another mimic then yeah. you do another session there's a mimic then you do another session giant angler fish it's like i'm sorry it's not a treasure chest you're already in its mouth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh we're at 52 minutes okay um do you have any other uh, creations that we can take a that you can walk us through? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I have a couple others. Uh, I have one that I've actually run and kind of play tested for myself, um, which again comes from uh, there's an inspiration here from nature. So I really like the myconids, the kind of fungus people um, oh, that yes. are in the monster manual. I think they're great, but they're not really uh they don't really have many combat abilities yeah, they're not versatile they're not very versatile at all but again just like the way there are lots of spiders there are so many types of mushrooms out there and they're all really unique and cool in themselves um and i ran a game where myconids were kind of the main uh bad guy um in the end it turns out they were just trying to live their own life and like interfering with the nearby village just uh, by coincidence but I didn't want to use the basic myconids. I wanted to use an actual fungus as my base template. And um, so I'm up at Simon Fraser University. There's uh, some mulch there that was newly placed down by one of the parking lots. And that mulch has uh, some fungal spores in it and it sprouts every year. And what sprouts from there are, are what's called inky cap fungus. They're also called shaggy manes. It's a really cool fungus. It's got this huge white cap um that kind of slopes downwards uh and has all of these little frilly bits hanging off it hence the name shaggy beard and the way it works is spores are only released from the bottom of the cap and as the spores are released the fungus uh cells actually auto um it's called autolysis they they uh, digest themselves and as they digest this beautiful white mushroom cap turns into this black inky goo hence the name inky cap and that drips off and that exposes the next kind of layer of spores. And so as the fungus gets older, the cap disintegrates. And by, you know, a couple of days after it, it emerges, you're left with this just horrible kind of gooey black mess. It looks really kind of nasty. Um, and so I had this idea to kind of build a mycodid off of this. Another cool thing about these fungi is they're poisonous, but only if you've been drinking. Uh, because the poison is D... Your liver uses the exact same enzymes that it would use to uh, detoxify alcohol to detoxify the poison in the mushroom. And so I had these, um, basically, uh, I could use the way the inky cap looks to describe the myconids and its 
even if the players have encountered myconids before this is something new that they're not expecting why is it dripping black goo do i need to worry about that is it going to spawn black oozes uh yeah um, not in this case these were supposed to be cr one half monsters um but the way i kind of work this black goo in players aren't going to be eating their opponents mid-combat but i wanted it to interact with them in a way so i made it spray out <laughs> when the players attack and i turned it into a contact poison and i kind of custom built this encounter for a party where i knew there were characters that didn't drink as a rule because they were either druids or, or monks i can't or no it was a paladin um and so in combat i had characters who had consumed alcohol within the past two days auto fail there or no they had disadvantage on their saves versus the myconid poison and my party couldn't figure out what was going on um i think if it had gone longer they would have figured it out but that was kind of a fun uh it was more fun for me but <laughs> Um, but it was an interesting mechanic, let's put it that way. Yeah. The thing that springs to mind when we talk about fungus is cordyceps. Sure. Uh, like I was just thinking of, you know, having the myconids be like an evil overlord race that are like, you know, you can have, because for people who don't know, cordyceps is this crazy fungus. There's one for, they're, they're mostly in the rainforest, but the idea is there's different kind of cordyceps for different kinds of insects. Mm -hmm. Because what they do is, when um when the insect eats a bit of this fungus it actually starts to sprout inside of the animal and changes it its behavior um so like for example an ant will go up onto a twig high up in the branches grab on with its mandibles and then basically just dies and becomes a, a sprout of this fungus and then the uh spores will go and find more ants basically mm -hmm. and it's kind of crazy because like ant colonies have been recorded like if there's an infected ant they will take it out of the hive yeah um yeah, because they can smell it yeah they can smell it and because it, it and it was actually um used in the video game uh the last of us yeah because that's what the zombies are is that it's a it's a strain of cordyceps, cordyceps that is adapted to humans which is why like the late stage zombies look like they've got fungus growing out of their face because they do mm -hmm. there's also uh, a really great early x-files episode with cordyceps oh really <laughs> with human cordyceps yeah it's pretty freaky but i was thinking like you know you could have something where there's this myconid race that's figured out a cordyceps for for dwarfs and for sure. elves and for stuff and like you could have something be like it the way that it affects people is that they go out and try to bring people back to a dungeon mm -hmm. so that more people can get <laughs> infected and so like your party has maybe been hired by somebody who's already been infected and it's like do they realize and figure out that all of these um you know evil bandits that they're fighting in this dungeon are actually just people who are trying to infect them mm -hmm. and what do they do when one of their party members gets infected but yeah see this is perfect you're using nature as an inspiration and you've built not necessarily like a creature with stat blocks but a whole story hook based off of this i think that's great i think it's fantastic and i might just steal that idea i'm gonna steal that idea too um i think i read a comic that was like very similar along those lines and now i need to find <laughs> so one thing uh i so i'm an entomologist i work with insects i specifically work with uh these really cool insects called parasitoids parasitoid wasps so the way a parasitoid oh works yeah so you know them um parasitoids work uh is they're tiny tiny wasps and um just like cordyceps they're parasites that are specific for different species of insects they'll find an insect that's their prey and they'll sting it and then they'll inject uh an egg inside that insect the egg hatches eats the prey from the inside out and then develops inside <laughs> their prey that's already dead in the husk of their body and then emerge as a another wasp so 
probably this sounds familiar because it was used as the inspiration for the xenomorph in aliens and turns out there are actually already parasitoids in D&D. Slags. Yeah, they're not wasps, they're giant demonic frogs, which I think is almost way cooler. <laughs> um but yeah, you should check them out. They're horrible. Yeah, the the the, slag, the slags, yeah, because they, they there's only there's 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 five different colors and I think it's only the black ones that if you get hit with an attack, there's a chance that you get impregnated. Yeah. Um but I just wanted to say real quick, isn't there a type of I I might be misremembering this or it straight from my imagination, but isn't there a, a type of uh, parasitic wasp that it actually, the chemical that it, it injects, it doesn't implant an egg. It actually implants a chemical first so that the creature will want to go to a place where the wasp baby will be safe while the course is being eaten. Yeah, sure. So there are a couple different wasps that do that and they're, they're not, parasitoids so there's the uh jewel wasps which attack cockroaches and crickets and what they'll do is they'll sting the insect with a, a poison that kind of semi paralyzes them um and then it'll cut off its antennae and the antenna are kind of what insects use to feel out and smell the rest of the world so without those they're um blind they've lost two of their major senses and so the, the wasp will then grab uh the head of the insect or a leg or whatever and drag it back to a nest and then because it's been, um, you know, paralyzed by this venom, it just kind of sits there. The wasp will lay an egg um, on or near the, the cockroach. And then the larva will hatch and just eat the cockroach while it's still alive, starving to death. We might need a content warning for this episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this is what I'm talking about. The natural world sucks. It would suck <laughs> to be most insects. And we haven't even animals. talked about, like, bot flies and stuff yet. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bot flies, hagfish. There's some do, really awful stuff ha- out there. Hagfish, I'm okay talking about those, but do, <laughs> just as a warning, like you can look up the uh, these other, like the wasp and the cordyceps fungus. Do not look up bot flies. Yeah. No. Um, uh, if you're squeamish, they're, they're pretty bad. But hag, um, I, I, real quick with hagfish, though, I think it would be a great monster for mm-hmm. D&D because oh, yeah. for people who don't know, the, the hagfish slime, it's the slime that it expands like in to 14 times its, its volume. That, I think, yeah. Like, and it's kind of crazy because the, the hagfish slime is basically this thing that it secretes from its skin. And the way that it escapes from predators, it basically, it ties itself into a knot to wipe off a whole bunch of slime and basically hurl it at its at a predator. Yeah. And the predator just basically gets this face full, because they live underwater, mm-hmm. and it gets this face full of expanding slime. Yeah. And if it's a fish or a shark, then that gets into its gills and it can't breathe. So it has to, it has to go away. It's really cool. Uh, just a note about hagfish biology. They don't have backbones, and you know, uh, biologists used to think that, uh, oh, well, they're um, descended from like lampreys and stuff, which are some of the earliest, earliest creatures that had backbones. Turns out, they're not. They uh, are descended from a lineage that did have backbones, and then they lost them <laughs> because it was probably, you know, more advantageous because then they could tie themselves into knots and burrow better. One of the main ha- hagfish hunting tactics, they're carrion feeders. They'll go after dead things. But if there's a wounded fish that's about to die, the hagfish will actually burrow in through the gills, the the wound itself, or through the fish's anus and like start eating the fish while it's dying. And I just think that's the most horrible thing you could do to a living thing. So Nature, like all of Mother Nature, like there's, you know, you, you look at, out at a forest, you're like, you know, at sunset, it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's like, no, there are hundreds of things that are dying horribly out there right now. Yeah. So if you need inspiration for monsters, just watch, you know, planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I want to, I think we should wrap up soon. Sure. But I do want to talk uh, very quickly about making a monster based on an actual like creature that isn't an ambush predator. Because sure. we focus really heavily on that. Yeah, okay. And I think a good example is the Japanese hornet. Sure, yeah. Because like one or two of those will attack an entire hive of bees and just decimate it. <laughs> just start cutting off heads. So the, the reason that that works for the Japanese hornet is because they're... Um, uh, the chitin, their exoskeleton, is too hard for the bees to pierce with their bee stings. Yeah. And they're, they don't, a lot of insects, um, in order to be flexible, have these membranes between plates of chitin. The Japanese hornets, those membranes are really well protected. So in essence, the Japanese hornets have a high enough AC that honeybees are never going to hit it. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, are they Japanese hornets? What's the, what are the, the ones? Because there's, I remember seeing something where there's a hornet that, or a wasp that attacks bees' nests because it wants to get to the young mm-hmm. um and sometimes it's, it's successful but the times that it's not is when the bees enough bees swarm it and yeah. they vibrate and heat up so these are that's japanese honeybees and the thing that i think I find is crazy is they heat up to the point where they're almost dead but the wasp is dead yeah exactly so this is it's just kind of a really cool like biochemical note the smaller you are the easier it is to dissipate heat so the lethal temperature for honeybees is slightly higher than the lethal temperature for the Japanese hornet because the Japanese hornet is so much larger that it retains that heat uh, and loses it slower. So um, honeybees, yeah, like you said, will swarm around the Japanese hornet and then basically vibrate their bodies and it gets up to like 40 degrees Celsius, something ridiculous. Okay, so this is great because from a design perspective, right? Okay, high AC, really high AC, maybe Mm -hmm. like AC 22, absurdly high AC. Yeah vulnerable to fire damage mm-hmm. and you know you look at some of the fire spells see what the saves might be yeah and make sure it has a low like a low ability check for those or even disadvantage on checks versus fire so something that i would be cautious about is telegraphing to your players because it, another thing about the japanese hornet is it can kill like thousands of honeybees right and yeah. you don't want to be throwing something that lethal at your players and to them it just looks like a giant wasp it's not necessarily obviously vulnerable or um you know weak to anything yeah. and so they might just spend a lot of rounds trying to hit it yeah. being frustrated because they can't because they don't know their a- the ac right they just know they can't hit uh, one of the things that i think we could have touched on a little bit though is that we don't have time for now is it's like we're talking about this japanese hornets where there's also the bumblebees Sure. And like you can, when you're thinking of creating a monster, like when you're looking at nature, there's usually like if there's a predator, there's usually a preferred prey. Mm-hmm. And what springs to mind for me is like, okay, maybe you have these giant wasps, like giant wasps. Mm-hmm. And there's also a race of insectoid people that are the bees. I mean, there's already the formians, which are sentient ant people. So you, you change those up a bit. Now they're sentient bee people yeah. and they have ancient stories of this horrendous <laughs> wasp and how their elders, you know, would scare it away oh with torches. God, the dragon of their people. Yeah. yeah. Again, see, now we've got a whole story hook, yeah. not just a cool monster. Ooh, this is great. Really quick. Other thing they do is spit venom that blinds people. Um, <laughs> or is that, is that the Japanese hornet that I'm thinking about? No, that's, uh, there are other things that spit poison, but not yeah. the hornet. It yeah. has a really nasty sting though. Yeah. 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 The, ja- yeah the Japanese hornet is one of those things. Cause I'm so used to when I look at pictures online, like usually like, especially for, for like bugs or animals or stuff, usually one of the first pictures you see, it'll be like the, the creature against a neutral background of like, like white or green or blue or something, just a, mm-hmm. like a primary color, or it'll be like, yeah, it's out in nature, but there's no reference for how big it is. And then you see a reference for how 
goddamn big these wasps Usually are. Usually it's somebody holding it in the palm of your hand. You're like, oh, no. I actually <laughs> saw a picture. This is where I forgot my first chance to ever, like, visual scale for them. Uh, someone we went to high school with who was staying in Japan who had a dead one that he was holding in, like, on a sheet of paper. Yeah. And you could see it compared to his hand, and it was, like, the size of his thumb. So one great thing about using actual existing creatures is instead of just describing it to your players, show them a picture of this and say, now imagine that it's the size of a small school bus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should wrap up. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan. Sure. What is one thing that uh, if you could go back in time and tell yourself about the first time you were kind of designing a monster on your own, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Um, so I guess the one piece of advice that I would give myself is to trust the Dungeon Master's Guide and especially trust the Monster Manual. There's nothing wrong with using whole stat blocks for creatures that are similar to the one you're trying to design because you're going to know, but your players aren't going to know, right? And again, it's okay if the monster doesn't work out just work on the fly so that it doesn't kill your party (laughs) (laughs) yeah like a big thing i've always noticed is like oh yeah that breath weapon doesn't need to recharge players don't need to know that it didn't fail its role (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah okay uh thanks so much for coming on is uh is there anywhere online that people could find you or anything you want to promote while you're here um sure yeah well i have a twitter i'm at snoozeriel <laughs> on twitter <laughs> um yeah i don't have any any uh D related projects but uh i am in a community band here in vancouver for any local listeners the carnival band uh we have open rehearsals every monday 7 30 uh at the britannia community center super super fun um competence is optional we like to say (laughs) we're for beginners experts anyone who just likes to play we play gigs outside Uh, we do parades protests all that sort of thing that sounds fun then uh, i'll see you there (laughs) cool cool that yeah thanks so much for coming on this was a blast and i think there's there's definitely a lot more that we could dive into so yeah it's a rich deep subject um I, i hope we've given people enough building blocks for them to start yeah and if you uh, you happen to know somebody who is sort of an expert on a specific type of animal, <laughs> always good to talk to them about it. Yeah, of course. And and actually, just real quick before we end, like if people out there think of something really crazy, like if they if they know of an animal that would make a really good D and D monster, send it to our Twitter account. I want to see these things. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'll be following that. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much again for coming on. Yeah, thanks and, for having uh, me. This is great. Yeah, Super fun. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Bye. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and t- tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Everyone is Jonas is a live-streamed, competitive role-playing podcast hosted by me, Doug Vandalay. Me, Eric Ivanovich. And me, Talia Murdoch. On twitch.tv forward slash cavegoblins every Monday at 7.30 p.m. PST. I was told that once, the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed, and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. 
Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.